0: Hello and welcome to the Particular Good podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. I'm Charles Hughes Huff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. We're here in Rochester, New York, but we have campuses also in Buffalo, Syracuse, and Albany. Today I'm here with Marco Stengo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry in Albany, New York. And he and I are going to talk to Jordan Daniel Wood, whose book, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus Confessor, will be published by Notre Dame Press in spring 2022. Jordan's book is magnificent, beautiful, smart, sophisticated, and enrapturing, to put it mildly. So it's a great privilege for us to talk to Jordan today about his book, I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Without further ado, here's Jordan. Jordan, welcome to the particular good podcast. You may have given us a whole philosophical, theological basis for our title that I didn't <laughs> have before. Um, it's the particular hypostatic good in this case. I'm there just, we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I have. We're. we're very pleased to be talking with you about your forthcoming book on Maximus the Confessor. And before we plunge into the book, which we've read and want to talk about, I want to ask you the very basic question Who was Maximus the Confessor?
1: Yes, it sounds basic, doesn't it? But <laughs> always, I guess, no, it's, I mean, the, the thumbnail is that Saint Maximus the Confessor was a uh, Byzantine uh, thinker. he's a lay monk. so he's not he's not an officially ordained um, leader in the church. Um, he's called a confessor because through the debates, the christological debates, and so on, that he he wielded so much influence, even though he wasn't an official leader, that by the end of his life, when he's age eighty, which is around six sixty a d um, the emperor and several ecclesiastics want him to stop causing a fuss over these Christological issues like, are there two activities in Christ? Are there two wills in Christ was especially pressing at the end of his life? And he wouldn't shut up about it. So, so they uh, cut out his tongue and they cut off his right hand so he could no longer speak or write his words, his teaching, and cause problems. Um, And so that's why he's called a confessor. He's a, he was tortured for the sake of the faith. And uh, it wasn't 19 years later that he was, his position was vindicated actually in 681 by, uh, by the ecumenical council, the sixth ecumenical council. And so anyhow, that I say that that's like what you'll get in the textbook, you know, like real quickly. And the reason why I sort of laughed about the complexity of the question is because there's actually two maybe 3 I've recently heard about dueling lives of St Maximus or lives lives of Maximus. Hmm. One is the sort of standard Greek life places him in uh, uh, growing up in Constantinople. So he's born by the way about 580. Yeah. Uh so his dates are 586-62. Um so he yeah, so this this the Greek life tells the story is basically like, you know, he 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 rose in the ranks really politically originally in constantinople which is the heart of the eastern you know empire he becomes something like a secretary to the in the emperor's court leaves that life to become a monastic uh you know is extremely brilliant well educated in that milieu etc etc there's a dual there's a there's a sort of extremely polemical anti maximus <laughs> A uh, life uh, preserved in Syriac, which uh, the great scholar Sebastian Brock um, sort of retrieved and presented uh, it was decades ago, and this is definitely polemical. I mean, it's obvious that it's like it's like. Maximus, you know, was born a bastard child, of, you know, and like all this stuff. And like he was dropped off at the uh, on the porch of like an originist, you know, uh, monastery down in sort of you know, uh, Southeast Palestine. And so he's corrupt from the start, you know, all that. so that there's a lot of like obvious kind of absurd polemics, except except some scholars have sort of wondered recently if there really is something at least some core of truth in all this because it places him this is the big point instead of placing him in constantinople uh places him in palestine and that's where he grew up and for some scholars it's still hotly debated uh this makes more sense out of like for example he has got a whole set of letters which i'm currently in the process of translating and trying to get a volume uh, of and, and it would help explain his network um, for example, one of his major influences and spiritual mentors is St. Sophronius of Jerusalem. Mm. Um, and so anyway, there's, there's a bunch of there. There's a whole bunch of de- details we can go to. But the big point is St. Maximus, in retrospect, whether he was brought up in Constantinople or in Palestine, somehow is extremely well-educated. Um, he is, he's, like I said, he's a lay monk. He's not, he doesn't have an official capacity, but he commanded so much respect and influence. And so many people wanted to know what he thought about these various issues by the end of his life. He was even tortured, uh, and killed for, for them, even though he's later vindicated. And so he's really remembered he's a saint in both East and West. Um, he's remembered as, especially in the East, though, as I, some call him like the pillar of orthodoxy or um, the foundation of uh, Byzantine theology or these different titles. So that's that's a Maximus in a nutshell.
2: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Um, uh, next question is just a personal one. <clears throat> How do you end up writing on Maximus the Confessor? Oh, yeah, we, we all end up uh writing dissertations out of ourselves, our persons, you know, this is why I wrote on punishment, punishment. <laughs> um, but uh the, why what was it in you that what was drawn to what's in Maximus?
1: Oh man, oh, yeah, I should have known you're gonna ask this. I've listened to the other podcast. I know this is a running thesis you have mm-hmm. um, so. To be honest with you, uh, so I did my master's work on Origin of Alexandria, mm. um, and that was an extreme, That was like an easier question to answer. Like, why did I do that? Because it really was like in the context of my life, where I grew up was was a was in a sort of primitivist tradition. It was like an American Second Great Awakening, extremely Protestant. So Protestant, they don't even think of themselves as Protestant. Protestant, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, very biblicist uh, tradition. And so when I learned at some point in my Bible college career, when I was going to become a minister in this tradition, when I learned that like uh, people didn't like Christians didn't read the Bible the way I was being taught to read the Bible in that context, like for most of church history. It kind of got me curious, like, why not? <laughs> why were they uncomfortable with spiritual senses? Why were they comfortable with allegory and so on? So of course, Origen's the guy to go to, because he's the guy that showed up in my textbook.' like, this guy was absurd. Look what he says about it, uh, the wood of Noah's Ark." Um, so <laughs> so I, I, it really was a personal question of like, why is this book which has been handed down within various Christian traditions? Why was it handed down within the context? Uh, in which it was read so differently than the one I know now, which opened up the broader question about just, which just with just revelation and history, the church and history, the Holy Spirit with His people in history, uh, the tradition. So, so that's how I got into origin, which is a little clearer because that's like I really was trying to just answer that question. Um, by the time I got to Boston College where I wrote my dissertation, I actually went there thinking I was going to write on Saint Gregory of Nyssa. I mm-hmm. thought, well, he's sort of the next guy. I mean, if you're going to do the Alexandrian Christianity thing, you've got Origen, you've got St. Gregory. And so uh, I went there planning to do that. It was like through a bunch of mishaps. I ended up in – we had like no real – Greek patristic offering when I entered the Boston College that semester. So I decided to go over to Holy Cross, which is a Greek Orthodox seminary and school. And I took a class on St. Maximus from Father Maximus Constance, who is who is the translator of the of Maximus' huge work, the Ambigua, and the other huge work, questions or responses to Thalassius. And so we had a whole class just on the Ambigua. I pretty much took it just to fill credits, but within two weeks, of my PhD work, I'm reading these pages and I, I don't know, I can't really explain it to you. It was just like, I was just taken by this. And I, and really the way I framed the book, even like the rhetoric isn't feigned. Like it really was the question I asked myself, which was, is, is he serious? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, the, the question was really, for real, as the kids say, you know, like I was just like, this is, this is incredible stuff. And kind of, kind of bold and wild claims, which you don't necessarily typically associate with like the fathers, like tradition, you know, just sort of crafting and, and, you know, hewing sort of the the basic foundation of the church, but really he's thinking these things through to an extreme degree. And yet it really rung true for me. It was compelling and really beautiful. So I, within two weeks, I'd already decided like, no, I'm going to write on Maximus. And so, um, yeah, I, I, that's, the, that's the sort of long, you know, long and short of it. I mean, the central claim, I had kind of moved from like reading scripture and why, why read scripture in this way. Maximus very much does read scripture in the or, origin this sort of Alexandrian tradition. But um, really, it was what he was saying about Christ mm-hmm. and the world. I mean, it's just you think you have to wait. Well, I was brought up in a context maybe where you think you have to wait to like Karl Barth to get something like a radical Christocentrism. And I actually like Bart, uh parts of Bart quite a bit. And so I have no nothing but respect for him. But and that in or Hans von Baltazar, who on the Catholic side sort of right, as Bart called them, the the uh what did he call him? It was in that dogmatic he says like these Christocentric Catholics, uh, and he sort of <laughs> he was skeptical that their view is gonna win the day among Catholics who are so obsessed with like fundamental theology and natural theology. Mm-hmm. Um uh but that's obviously turned out to be a little wrong and so you you think you have to wait for this and it's of course important that balthazar's one of his major works is on maximus Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that that was sort of another connecting point for me because balthazar and a lot of even balthazar scholars i've heard a few of them say they think really um his book on maximus cosmic liturgy is where he kind of like fundamentally kind of Un, unveils for the first time what he'll develop for the following decade. So anyway, he was important for Balthasaris, I think but really this kind of maximalist, not you know, no pun intended, or maybe it is <laughs> uh, maximalist. <laughs> no, and I and I kind of came to shy away from just Christocentrism. It, it isn't just Christocentric like Christ is like there in the middle always. So no matter how far you roam towards the edge of the circle, you can look back and see Christ. It's like Christ is everything, mm-hmm. everything. He, he is really, it's It's actually a reduction to say this, but it's like he is the principle. his act of incarnating really is the act of God's creation, in the entire universe. So this sort of, and lots of people recognize the kind of Christos cosmic Christology thing in Maximus, But really among, I can think of a few thinkers really in the pre-modern era who have have a vision quite like that. So I was taken by that. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Very good. So uh, in this book, you know, you talked about your frame, which is, does Maximus really mean what he says? (laughs) Or is he, or not? Uh, And you are interested in what he says. Uh, about the God-world relation and his Christologic and its relationship to that and Mm -hmm. creation, eschatology. So for you, Maximus is making claims about metaphysics, about eschatology, about creation, that all are derived from his understanding of Jesus, of Nazareth, the Logos, the eternal word. Jesus Christ, which you call crystal logic. So, can you just lay out for us what is
1: Maximus's crystal logic? <laughs> uh, I would say that the fundamental thing that needs to, uh, where you, like you have to start with understanding, is that kind of, a, and the way I put it in the book is that he he is a part of a movement um, in the the late antique or the later patristic Greek patristic tradition. Which scholars, since the early 20th century, have called the Neo-Calcedonians? Uh, the Neo-Calcedonians. Um, there's a lot. You know, you could. I could list a few, like John Grammaticus, uh, Leontius of Jerusalem, as a Byzantium, and uh, Maximus. Some people put John of Damascus in there. So um, there's several others, but um, these thinkers are obviously post-Calcedon, and they're trying to defend. The what we call now the Chalcedonian definition of Christ as one person or one hypothesis into natures uh, or, or essences. And clearly, I mean, I think the greatest resistance to that formulation that reject Chalcedon's understanding of Christ came from what we, I guess, now call the uh, meophysitist factions or um, traditions. And these are ones that really, in faithful, especially a, a, a obedience to St. Cyril of Alexandria's extreme emphasis on Christ, the one subject, right? It is it is the same person who who created the world, but also who died on the cross. Like, it's the same person. They, they thought Chalcedon ceded too much ground to the Nestorians. Because if you look at the definition, of course, you do see something like, and even today, uh, there are theologians, like highly respected theologians, who worry even over kind of the framing of Chalcedon. They don't reject it, like maybe the meophysicists do. But they worry that it's too symmetrical sounding, like uh, like too reciprocal, too too divided, right? It reminds them, even if unintentionally, it reminds them a little bit of the story's two-subject model. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I mean, I mean like, okay, we have, we have one and the same Lord Jesus. We confess one and the same Lord Jesus Christ right? Uh, Born of the Father before all ages, but also in these last times, born of Mary. So two births. Consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit and its divinity, but also consubstantial with us, which is is something that's pretty pressed there that hadn't been emphasized as much prior. Okay, so two consubstantialities, Mm -hmm. two births, two consubstantialities, two natures, two, 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 you can go down the list, right? And it's not accidental that the next 300 years, actually that that was the debate, like it really did go down the list. Like, well, two natures, really? Are you going to also say two activities? That sounds kind of weird. Like when he actualizes his powers, what is it? It's two different ones, but he's one person, What, is, you know? And, and so there's that debate. Now, what about two wills? Let's go to the garden of Gethsemane. Really, not my will, but you will. your will be done, you know? It seems to me like, like, like if you're going to read it that way, it's a conflict of wills and that introduces division. So division is really, the meophysites, like Severus of Antioch, especially, he's the most notable, even today, he's venerated in certain traditions, um, really rejects it because they're like, look, you just seeded too much ground. You betrayed Saint Cyril. And so here I bring all this up. That's the context for this fundamental task, which is what distinguishes, especially the Neo-Chalcedonians, of which Maximus, I think, is sort of the culmination. And that's this: this is the task. Chalcedon lays it down that Christ is both one and two. Mm. The one is correlated with something called person or hypothesis, and it uses both, prosopone and hypostasis. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, these two in what? And you know, this is like basically, we all teach this, right? Uh, two natures, uh, two fusis or also usies, right? Essences. So what this does, though, and why I say it sets a task is now you really have to think in a much more explicit way than ever before. Um, how in the world do these things relate? If he's both one and two, how do you speak of the two in a way? It doesn't compromise his oneness, Mm -hmm. the unity of his subject. But how do you speak then of the unity of his subject uh, as it were alighting, or they often say, right, confusing, the famous adverb, unconfused, right, indivisible. Mm -hmm. Well, so Chalcedon just like comes and says this. It very much does not explain it. <laughs> like It's it's like Karl Rahner even said, right? This is like the beginning. Uh, Chalcedon isn't the finished task, it's really the beginning of the task. But even yeah. Rahner was saying that. Balthazar, I think, would agree with that as well. Uh, and recently, just as a note, side note, I, I think the work of Johannes Zuckerberg has been good in terms of connecting like 4th century Trinitarian Cappadocian theology, which was also dealing with right, essence and persons in the Trinitarian context explicitly, and his his work kind of really brings it up to the Christological debates, but that hasn't been developed as much. So the task for Neo-Chalcedonians is to defend the Chalcedon by explaining and developing these two different, what I call in the book, logics. Mm -hmm. There is a, and so I want to call the whole thing Christologic, but really it's important to stress that this Christologic has, as it were, it's the integration of two logics. One is what I would want to call the logic of essence or nature, which I I'm going to just make this claim I can't substantiate, it, but it seems to me that's the most, it's it's most often I, I should say it's the most intuitive for like say philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, it it in different ways characterizes the Platonic tradition, the Aristotelian tradition, uh, whatever you know. It just there's it's very clear like, like it's like a lot of ancient. Uh, late antique and ancient philosophy, right? Begins with say um, the organon or something like lessons on rhetoric and logic. And you look at Aristotle's categories and then you look at Porphyry's development of that. And look, what's a genus? What's it? All these is as it were the logic of essence.
2: Mm-hmm. How do
1: you categorize aspects and, and kinds of being? Uh, that is causing the problem in Christology. It already caused problems in Trinitarian theology. It's causing the problems of Christology because is is Christ God, in which case there are certain things that seem to be immediately proper to that, like not dying, <laughs> for example, uh, not being ignorant, being able to, right, uh, you're not having to have a human mother, for example, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: being eternal rather than temporal, et cetera, et cetera, right, not being passable. Um, so so is he a part of that category? if you think in terms of essences, it seems like how are you gonna fit that together with the other category of the human being, which is all of the contraries, mm-hmm. ignorant, mortal, passable, etc., cetera, temporal. Um, and if you look at, for example, uh, say uh, Theodorate of Cyrus and his work, Erinestes, sorry, uh, that's exactly how he begins. And this is a common thing, like and he's defending more than a story line, which is look, If we're going to begin with, what what is God? What do we mean when we say divinity, the divinity? Well, it means this, and you list those properties, and then you go through, well, what's human being? And if you start in that sort of realm of abstraction, what I'd want to call the logic of nature, essence, it seems basically doomed that you're going to find a way to bring them together, to be properly predicated of the same subject at one and the same time. So that's the logic of essence, and it causes a problem because what needs to happen in both Trinitarian theology and now here in Christology, because of Chalcedon, one in the same Lord Jesus Christ, one in person and hypothetically, one subject. We have to now think, what does it mean to be a subject? And not only that, but what the neo chalcedonians do is they kind of what I think I call in their effect a sort of revolution in metaphysics. Where they want to say that what's most fundamental and has existence in in and of itself isn't, say, for example, a realm of the forms, which are self-subsistent, perfect, and eternal and changeless, Mm -hmm. but is actually the the hypostasis, Uh, which is like, not even Aristotle goes that far, or even the Stoics, right, who do reject the forms, but in certain ways, but like, and so, so they, they need that to happen, and you see that because if you make, if you give, as it were, ontic weight, existential facticity to Christ's two natures in and of themselves by virtue of the fact that they're natures, you will always end up in two-subject Christology and historianism. So it needs to actually be the case that the existential weight is transferred, as it were, to something that's distinct and yet inseparable and even identical to the two natures, the hypostases. That is the thing that, quote, like Le- Leontius says, quote, exists in and of itself, and natures never do. Mm-hmm. You'll never run into a nature that's not already a person mm-hmm. or, or an individual. We could, you know, we could discuss that. but And so all, all I'm saying, all these details are basically saying that where you start with crystal logic is the fundamental task, which is to develop the sense or the logic or the, uh, the coherence of... Uh, uh, persons or or hypostases as such, and natures or essences as such, because you've got to figure out, first of all, why Chalcedon distinguished these and said, one is the oneness of Christ, the other is the two-ness of Christ, the duality. And then secondly, how do you bring them back together so that you're not just dealing with in in sheer abstraction, and sheer almost mythology? So that's like the big task of Neo-Chalcedonians one of the main moves that they do is they deprive natures of all existence in and of themselves. They give it to the, something called the hypothesis in the book. I speak of this as the positivity of the person, which is not formal. And that's, I don't think, I think modern philosophy. And I think Marco, he could probably say more about this than I could, but it seems to me like there are different strands that have caught onto this because you, you don't have to approach it through Christology. You can, but what is a person in fact, you know, what? what is it, when I'm looking at a face, like I'm thinking a lot of the tropes about like the face, you know, the face of the other. What I'm presented with isn't, isn't um, an idea. Hmm. It's not a definition. It's not formal in that sense. It's not like I can give you a genus and differentiate to get a species. It might have all those things, it presents that. So by uh, looking at you guys, you're human beings, of course, You present to me humanity, I can abstract about that. I don't need to necessarily refer to you to do that. But there's absolutely no way in which I could uh, abstract a person. In fact, I can't even abstract about a person unless I've already met them, which means that the only thing that, not only do I know someone when I I meet someone, but the only way I truly know them is immediately in an experience. So it's never exhausted by any idea. And, and this to me is very much, I don't say that Max was set out to create like an existentialist philosophy or something like that. But I, I do think there's something fundamental about shifting that weight from say nature's or self subsistent forms somewhere out there or within us all or imminently entrance and whatever. Self subsist, shifting all of that to the hypostasis because Christ's person is what needs to hold all this together. And that, that, I think, is the task that Maximus is very much in, in that tradition. And there's going to be a great emphasis on the, the non-formal positivity is the real, like, the academic way I put it in the book, mm-hmm. which is just to say, I mean, really, all it, you could think of it this way if you want to get there quickly. What does a proper name tell you about someone? And most of the time, with some exceptions, of course, so depending on the language and stuff too. But most of the time, nothing, really. <laughs> uh, I, I can only say like, oh, wow, that's such a Charles thing to do if you know Charles, right? Like, uh, but you have to experience him to know him. And so um, whatever it is that's known, whenever I know Charles or Mark or whoever, it's that thing Neil the are saying, that is the fundamental one unifying reality, which is Christ himself, the person. Mm -hmm. He is the one, he himself in being the other two natures at once. He himself is as Maximus loves to quote from, from Timothy. Um, he is the one, he is the sole mediator of God and humanity, right? He himself, he means that like his person is so, um, that gets at some of the, I think the one other thing I'll add, and then I'll kind of stop, is what this does do, though, and I think it's pretty important. Maximus says this, for example, in Ambiguum 27. He, he says um, what it does is it means that it, in Christology at the very least, there is such a thing as what I call in the book a, a, proper, a, a properly improper predication. So he brings up the verse in John where Christ refers to the Father as my God and your God, my Father and your Father. And he says, he's, speaking, he's thinking with St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He, he, he says, well, surely, of course, Christ's, uh, the Father isn't Christ's God in his divinity. It, it's just in his flesh that that's his God, but neither is his flesh given, you know, begotten from eternity. Um, is, uh, so God, the father is not the father of the flesh, but the father of the divinity or Christ as divine, but he's also the God of Christ's flesh.
2: <laughs> and so
1: what he says there is sort of like, it's the very fact that Christ is in his person, both of them at once, that these are actually both simultaneously proper to predicate. Even though if you were just thinking, as he says there, even it, when, I, when I abstract this mentally, when I think of it simply in terms in my mind, it seems wrong to say both of one in the same person. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the father is his God and his father. And yet that's exactly what you, it's not just that you can say that or whatever. It's a, you have to say that to fully understand the significance of Chalcedonian vision of Christ. And so that, that, I think, that is a pretty radical thing because then if you turn to start to apply this to the whole god world relation, say in deification or something like that, it means that you can start to properly improperly <laughs> predicate things of say created beings that really isn't abstractly proper to say of them. Mm-hmm. Like for example, Melchizedek is uncre- unbegotten, uncreated, which he does say in his deification. So anyway, that's down the road, but like um, that, that's what I'm just saying. that That's sort of the um, what we normally think of as impossible. We like to think that, the creator creature distinction is really just the absolute really nothing crosses it of course the truth is the one thing that crosses it is is the word of god
3: yeah can i can i ask something charles yeah, yeah. i over. mean i have so many questions and this is so good i can't even believe it but um, <laughs> it, the, the um, i was wondering uh, reading your book and chapter one but also the following chapters yeah, going back to this notion of hypostasis, which seems to be crucial for the entire argument of the book. Um, I was uh, listening to you and reading the book. I was wondering, uh, I mean, just trying to to clarify this notion. Insofar as, so on the one hand, hypostasis seems to me just a synonym of individual, yeah. right? An individual.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and and the way I understand Aristotle would be that he already focuses his attention on individuals. Of mm-hmm. course, there are always individuals of a certain nature. Right. But they're also, in, so the hippocamenon, the primary yeah. substance, is an individual. Mm-hmm. It's not a platonic form. It's not um, uh, an abstracted species. is a materialized individual. Um, and like the way you were treating the notion of hypostasis seemed to me to go both in the direction of taking hypostasis as a synonym of individual, but also saying that hypostasis is what makes the individual individual. So a sort of principle
2: exactly. there. Yes, yes. Uh, to,
3: the, to the to the extent that you also say that it's sort of neutral with respect to natures, right? Mm-hmm. Like a principle of neutrality, if I'm not wrong, or something like that. Yep. Um, and, and so I was wondering... How can it be both? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, in what way the, the hypostasis is neutral insofar as, well, even before incarnation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but even before incarnation, the, the, uh, the, the second person is divine, so has a nature, has an usia, has an essence, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so you always have individuals of a certain nature with a certain nature.
2: Instantiating
3: a certain nature, even though instantiating doesn't require Platonism, right? Right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it's all very interesting. I'm just trying to understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, this is. Yeah. I think your question is it's a, it's exactly right one. Um, and and what it, one thing it does. What I like about that question is that it it actually is another way of illustrating why they needed to develop further the sense of hypothesis. Because as you well know, I mean, that word had been used quite a long time ago and pretty banal since. I mean, right? the most original sense is just like the stuff at the bottom of a drink, you know, or just the material that's there, like you said. So, um, and Zach Huber's works pretty good on the like fourth century issues that becomes a little more problematic because like say, for example, Father, Son, and Spirit. Certainly they have a nature, but they don't relate to their nature in the way that any other individuals ever relate to their nature, which is to say as members of a genus. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you say that, I mean, right? So uh, so the divinity, and this is a later development, the neo like, well, I should just say really just Maximus and one other author I know of, it's an anonymous piece. He'll even go so far, Maximus will even go so far as to say, look, even in the Trinity, um divinity never exists as such there is no such real thing as divinity all there is is the three um and so (laughs) so so for him this is what i mean by in that first chapter you said neutrality or like indifference i tried to sort of sneak in the medieval scotist sense of indifference a little sneaky me but um right so not indifferent in any kind of psychological way but in the sense of. if, if, if hypothesis, and I'll get to the question of the individual, if it's, is it individual or not? Let's just say the person is both positive and non-formal. Then it means that the person relates to his nature or natures non-formally. It, it doesn't relate to fund, the most fundamental identity of you and your own nature. Isn't that you, like, you don't have, I should say it this way. You don't relate to your nature naturally. Because how you relate naturally is your nature, through your nature. And so if you really are, as a person, something just more than your nature, and this is a good statement, a clear one, from Leontius of Byzantium, he makes this statement, Maximus quotes it, um, though he doesn't attribute it. He says, a nature is everything that a hypostasis is, but a hypostasis is not all that a nature is. It's another way of saying that non-formal positivity there's a real weight to person, even though you can't abstract it, which is bizarre. So, this becomes a datum that needs to be explained ontologically. It's an effect, after all, right? God doesn't just create a, 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 a vast, uh, a vastly ordered arrangements of essences. He creates all the way down to the positivity of the person, which is disclosed in the face or in the immediate experience, into subjective experience. That's downloading stuff into Maximus. But uh, all, all to say that the question of how these two relate, it's presented in Chalcedon's definition, but it's also, I think, a, a, a sort of an immediate one that perhaps now we even intuit a little more clearly than they did before. To, to even make your question, to give it even more teeth in the actual, um, in the texts, two things. First of all, say in the, in the instance of the incarnation, one of the things that distinguishes Maximus's view of the hypothesis from, say, Aristotle is that it can't be the case that Christ's humanity is, in, uh, is particularized by matter. So he is already his own proper person in the heart of the Trinity just by being begotten of the Father. He brings that exact same personal property, which is not only positive, but is its identity. That is what not only gives existence to his humanity in, in Mary's womb, right? Because of course, there's no, there's no humanity of Christ unless it's Christ. And so Christ being that humanity is also its generation from nothing. Um, So not only does he give it ontic weight or actual existence, concrete existence, but he gives it his own identity, his proper distinction, which is nothing less than the proper distinction, which makes him the son and the Trinity. So it's his person. He himself individual existentializes and individualizes the, the, Partic- if you want to use the language of certainty of Platonist, the particular human nature of Jesus of Nazareth. And so that, that principle of individuation in the incarnation is just the word of God. So, so we're pretty far from Aristotle on that point, at least. But it's also, it makes the principle of hypostasis a distinct principle than, say, the principle of Aristotelian underlying subject, which can also be called, right, uh, first usia.
3: Yeah. And does this, uh, just, just to, to and, and then I'll shut up and we, we'll move no, on. No, you're good, you're good. But, but but does this mean that also for all other individuals, the, the hypostasis is uh, not dependent on matter or something like that? It it's mm-hmm. precedes matter or mm-hmm. that's the implication that, that yeah, it would be the ugly in Christ that individuates.
1: Yes, it's the implication for Leontius of Byzantium and Maximus. Not everyone will go that route, but they do. And I, um, I actually have an article on this called, um, I think it's something, A Novel Use of the Body-Soul Comparison Emerges in Yocastodian Christology, just for a mouthful. But um, <laughs> and essentially what, what's interesting, you know, the body-soul analogy was an old one used in the fathers about in Christological debates, like, cause in a sense it kind of makes sense. And it's really interesting. I try to trace in the article, like the different ways, that different camps use the same analogy or comparison. It's like, if you're in the more cerulean thing, it's like, look, body and soul make one nature human being. That's what happened in Christ. So yeah, me like that tradition. If you're in more in the store and you say, look, body and soul, even when they're one human being, they're two distinct things that you can perceive. Your body's not your soul. <laughs> so it's like emphasizing the duality the division. What Maximus does is he, you would think, and other people just say, ah, the comparison's just too dissimilar. I'm not going to use it. Uh, what Maximus and like Leontius do is they, they in fact extend it exactly in the opposite direction that a lot of people would expect, although you just anticipated, which is they really do. They actually do extend it to everyone. You're not just reducible to your particular matter. In fact, your particular matter isn't. In fact, it's not even your body, unless it's you personally. Right. And so, um, yeah. So, so they definitely they end up extending it out almost as an anthropological principle, or 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 even broader, a principle of creation itself. Not everybody does that. But that's one of those interesting moves that Maximus does do because, it, as I try to you know go on at length in the book, he he tries to he applies this crystallogic logic to all of metaphysics to to the God relation itself. And so that, yes, exactly. You, you're, you're right. That's the right anticipation. That's, that's where he'll go on that point. He'll actually, he'll actually emphasize the, the, the comparison univocally. Yeah. He will say, even in you, you, you are not simply your body or your soul. And your body and your soul aren't even real unless they're you. And you're, you are not your body in a body-like way or your soul in a soul-like way. You are, your, you are both in a personal way. And so, uh, for him, it's not similarly in, in the case of the human being, but exactly as it is in the case of the human being, so it is in the case of Christ. So he actually goes in a univocal route, which is which was unprecedented. Uh, so the other point I was going to raise, though, Marco, with your another thing that he does, and I actually in the in conclusion of the book, I try to kind of meditate on this a little bit more because I think your question gets at the heart of a lot of things. Maximus notes that St. Cyril um, denies not only that Christ, the name Christ or the word Christ is a genus. He denies that. It's not like a genus, like a, like a nature where there's different members of that class called Christ. But actually Cyril and Maximus too, also denies that Christ is an individual. And not because they deny like, say, not because they, uh, you know, we're the originators of the uh, Jesus never existed thesis. <laughs> there we go, Charles. Let's throw you <laughs> a bone. Um, not because of that, but but because uh, individual still was too easily thought of as just as a mere instance of of a broader nature, a gen- more general nature. And so, what's really remarkable to me, it's why I sort of chose this exactly the point you raised to sort of end the book on what is that. The person, whatever else we say about the person, is reducible neither to a genius nor to a simple instance or individual or a particular even. It is, in fact, the ground of both. There is no such thing as universal and particular apart from the the whole set or class of persons uh, which bear and give their own self-subsistence to, right, in that formulation of hypothesis, what exists in itself. And so uh, it means then that not only is the person more fundamental, but the person is not subject to the dialectic of the universal in particular. This is the ground of deification. It's the ground of Christology. And I would, I think with Maximus, it's the ground of creation. And so, um, so he, so it's not only that he anticipates your point, but he even like emphasizes Christ is no mere individual. Now, the question of the person, what is the person? And then a lot of people worry about it. it's getting muddled with like modern notions of person more psychological ideas of person, or, you know, that's, that's a complicated question, but whatever's going on here is the very least is, as, as I try to articulate in there, the idea of person it's breaking new as it were metaphysical ground. It's, it's, um, and it's doing so precisely by having to meditate, uh, on the truth of Christ.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. If I could follow up with this, um, with respect to
0: metaphysics, um, which is your next chapter, if you talk about crystallogic, um, you you talk about this crystallogic as uh, protology and how it sort of structures creation, and uh, you talk about this in terms of uh, Maximus's logos and Lagoi. Mm-hmm. Uh, the words the second person of the Trinity, Logos, and then the Lagoi, which are uh, not emanations, not ideas, not Platonic scales of being that you could participate in, but uh, instances of the Logos in each thing, so that when, as I understand it, which is you can correct me if I'm wrong, in each person, um, is. It is a hypostasis, not just of body and soul, but of that person and the logos. Is that yes, yes? Could you could you say more about that?
1: Right. So yeah. So what what you're getting at there is it's it's a famous idea in in Maximus's thought, um, which is is it's what's called usually the doctrine of the Logi or logoi, I think how you pronounce it. Um, we'll just say logoi. Um, and and it's especially in Ambiguum Seventh's famous text. Uh, it's an incredible text, but he has these, you know, has a statement where he's like, "The Logos, the Word of God, through whom all things were made. The Logos is the Logoi, variously translated as princi- principles. Um, you know, obviously, famously or infamously, Logos in Greek has quite a lot of meanings and significances. Mm-hmm. But let's just say principles of the world." The logos is the principles of creation. That's that's one way to think of it as principles of creation. And he says the logos, who could <laughs> he says, he says it like, I love the rhetoric. It's like, who could not recognize? I mean, hello, it's just clear. By looking at creation, you're like, who could not know that that the logos is the logo? This is basically, by the way, right, another way of stating the classic one in many problem. Mm. Uh, you can think of it that way, although it's already in, it's already significant that he's doing it in terms of the logos and logoi. Although that's not wholly original to him, of course. Uh, even Philo has to, you know, do do some of this uh, already. And so, anyway, but um, the logos is the logoi. So the one proceeds and becomes the principles of creation, the logoi, um, and also then the many or the logoi. The principles are the one logos. So there's this identity between the person of the logos and the principles of all creation. Another great text, just to throw another text out there, comes from like uh, Centuries of Theology, 166, 1.66, where he says, he who knows the logoi, or I'm sorry, he, he who knows the, uh, no, that's right. He who knows the logoi of the cross in the empty tomb knows the logoi of all creation all created beings. And also, by the way, the Logoi of scripture. <laughs> um, and so there's this, there's this sense that the word of God is the ground and he himself in some sense proceeds into, and as the many principles, which are the grounding uh, the fundamental ontological principles of all creation. That is not in and of itself highly original. What I do think is original is when it's put into the into a Trinitarian and then a neocastan Christological context, it takes on a lot of different, you know, um, <laughs> takes on a lot of different uh, connotations. So for example, we were just talking about hypostasis, right? Well the logos is a hypostasis and that's not the same thing as speaking of just like the one divine cause. It's specifically the second person of the Trinity. And he even has a moment in that text where he says, I'm not, he basically says in a lot of ways, I'm not doing the apathetic theology thing, which is to speak of the divinity as such. Move that to the side. And then you see that the logos, the person, the word of God is the logoi, the, the the very ground and principles of all creation. Now, the question is, how do you interpret, do you do the Platonic or Neoplatonic thing? where you say, well, okay, that's fine. I mean, a lot of people say things like that. Uh, Proclus said things like this. Plotinus said things like this. Even Plato, there's a sense of, and certainly the Stoic interpretation is another way, where where there's some, a lot of people said there's some relation between the one cause of all things and then the manifold uh, pouring forth expression or fusion of all creatures, right? And if you're a Stoic, you're going to see all that rolled back up at some point. uh, And it's going to repeat. Or if you're a, if you're a, some sort of Platonist, you're going to say, yeah, these are emanations. They're like the the sun, the rays of the sun cascading down, and they take on different uh, qualities, the, depending on where they are on the scale of being, the chain of being. And yes, you can therefore sort of, as it were, ascend back through all things to the one. And that's your sort kind of Platonist. You might even think Thurgi is doing that, um, Thurgical ritual, whatever. There's a lot of ways to do this, right? But um, but what I think is extremely important is that the Word of God proceeding, if it's the person, the second Person of the trinity, the proceeding can't happen in the way that almost any other scheme says procession happens. Once again, let's just think of the historical incarnation. When the Word of God proceeded into Mary through the Holy Spirit... That was the very generation of his created nature, his humanity. That is the creation of his humanity, is his proceeding in his person. And what he, be, what he identifies himself with, he gives his own hypostasis to, which is what makes it be. And that is not the same thing <laughs> that almost anyone ever means by the one generates the many. Here's a quick, re, here's a quick way to see how that's, that's so. It's explicit, even in someone like Iamblichus. Who has to defend his Neoplatonic version of doing ritual and dergy and using material things in order to ascend to the one? One of the things he really wants to be careful about, because he's being criticized by certain people, like, say, the Porphyry, Porphyrian tradition didn't like this ritualizing of Platonism. Oh, uh, because well, uh, it's like, oh, why are you dealing with all this material stuff? But remember, Plotinus, the ascent of the soul within, the undivided soul, you can go within, you're already connected to the one. The one is imminent in all things, right? Why do you need to do all this stuff? Well, one of the things Yamakas has to say is, well, Yes, we need to use particular media, certain rituals, senses, places, temples, incantations, certain practices and rituals, in order to return to the one. But it's not as if the one is being affected by what we do. So it's never the case, even in surgic Neoplatonism, which would be the closest. I mean, the Amplicus, you get some really interesting and exciting statements like matter is the receptacle of divinity, which he says. (laughs) Uh, and, and and he's not shy about that. He's really going all in on that. And yet, even he will say, "But of course, we're never speaking of some symmetry, vertical symmetry, or reciprocity between the divine gods, or the, or you know later in Proclus the Henads, and certainly not the one." And every in all of its effects, what happens to an effect does not happen to the cause just because the cause affected that effect, right? Well, that's exactly what you say about Jesus Christ, because when he died, God died. Right? And it's complicated. Sure, we can get into the Trinitarian stuff, that the Father and the Spirit didn't. But at the very least, the Son of God, who is very God, consubstantial with the Father, died. So apparently what happened to his body happened to him. So not only is he the, himself, when he gives his own person to his humanity, not only is he himself the principle of creation of that humanity, but he so identifies himself with his own effects that what happens to his body, which is created, it is created, and that's that's not even just Maximus. That was in, uh, for example, um, Lateran six forty nine. It's in one of the canons there. Christ is created and uncreated. It says it both right, in Latin and in Greek. And you know, so what happens to his created body happens to him. That is not allowed. <laughs> Metaphysics typically of emanation, uh, procession, or any of that. So this is just one. I go in that chapter that you mentioned. I go through like several qualifications of the of the the qualifications to the paradigm of Neoplatonic procession. It's typical uh, in Maximus scholarship and really even Patristic scholarship broadly to kind of assume whatever he means by the words procession into all things as the many principles of all of the manifold is kind of like what they mean in Neoplatonism or Plotinus or whoever. <laughs> I try to basically argue that it can't be. In fact, it would really actually make, it would actually uh, make incoherent, say the Platinian model of emanation. Um, if if he were to admit the things that Maximus presses for the, for the words procession. So it isn't the same. And and the reason why it's not the same and why it, why it can't is because he's applying the Neo-Chalcedonian Christo which he forged in the heated debates of Christological, you know, fighting and faction and all this stuff that we normally cordon off in a class like, oh, here's the Christological debates. Let's talk about that for Maximus. You're never just speaking about Christology as if it's separated from, for example, the creation of the world, because, uh, you know, per my thesis, that is the creation of the world. The The, the creation of the world is the, the word of God incarnate in all things. as he says in Bigam 722. Um, so, so all that to say, uh, there's a really a lot of bizarre things that happens when you think protologically, say about procession or emanation in Maximus's context, and it's precisely because the logic at work isn't simply a Neoplatonic logic, but it's the logic of Christ as he's uh, formulated it, applied to the entire God world relation, creation from nothing, basically.
3: Yep. No, just to to continue on this line, one of the uh, most exciting things in the book, and also uh most moving things is when you talk about uh the ages of deification because this logic that you're talking about does not apply simply to to incarnation understood in isolation from everything else but it, it applies also to the deification of man and of creation yeah It's like symmetry right this symmetry uh-huh. and mm-hmm. yeah can you say something more about that or like absolutely though, when you discover it for the first time, because this is incredible. Oh man! I mean, look,
1: <laughs> look. I I was uh, you know I didn't expect to find somebody. Uh, uh, the last thing I would expect a Byzantine Greek to say in the seventh century is, uh, as Maximus says in the in the Mystagogy, uh, that that Christ God suffers in all of our suffering and in proportion to our own personal suffering. I mean, I was just reading Sergius Bulgakov. He says that. Um, but that's you know, we we come to expect that from the great sociologists, but uh, and and I happen to quite like that. But you don't have to be like a death of God process theologian, apparently, because that's definitely not (laughs) Maximus the confessor. You don't have to be a process theologian to get to get this amazing reciprocal reciprocity and symmetry between God and world, such such that like Christ. When he dies on the cross, he doesn't simply—it's not a personal, isolated suffering. He is, in fact, suffering the entirety of all of human suffering and creaturely suffering in him in himself. And we can explain how that's possible. It's—it's that's not just a nice image, by the way. It's not just like a, oh wow, that's that's a good like preaching thing to say, even if it's a little shaky and orthodox. Parents. It really is like an inevitable pretty hard one rigorous conclusion. We could get the details of that if we want. But yeah, But getting, getting to your point, the heart of it, I think, which is more important here, is that Maximus has this famous, and even in Maximus Scholarship, it's, it's known as the Tantum Quantum Principle, um, or, or in Greek, it's like the holos Posis, which is just, those are, right, they just mean uh, to this, to the degree that X happened, to that same degree, to that same extent, this happens. It's this sort of symmetrical, even in Syntax, like way of stating things. Maximus many times in many different works says that to the same degree that the Word of God became human in our deification, we become God to that same degree, which is pretty pretty radical. I mean, (laughs) and and he he doesn't just say he so he formulates it as a principle. Um, In fact. Right. For him, our, us becoming God is the same thing as God becoming us. It's just a different vantage point on one process, which is why, even in our suffering, it, God suffers. Um, and if we really want to be like classically theist about it and kind of get squeamish over the idea that we're compromising divine impassibility, well, it's like, you know, you already did, in some sense, concede that, at least in one case, namely the cross. Um, and so however you parse it out, and there are many ways to do that. We all know that. At the very least, though, I mean, the Son of God suffered and died. This is, this is, uh, this is creed. You, know, this is, you have to say that. So um, so uh, I would also point to, and Maximus alludes to this, I mean, look, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Paul elsewhere speaks about Christ you know, as co-crucified. Right and uh, Maximus certainly goes off on that. So so all of the, all of this to say, one of the things I think is remarkable about it. I actually first noticed it again, not surprisingly, just in Maximus's Christology, the isolated. Let's think of this as a separate topic thing. And one of the things he says, for example, in Book Five, he says um, the way we recognize the true unity or identity of Christ is in the fact. Of his quote, generation of opposites. Typically, we like to think in terms of coincidence of opposites, right? But that's because, in, in our way, in our, again, look, look, perfectly natural way of approaching things, we begin with abstractions, the easiest thing to do. Let's put things in the right categories, let's define the edges, and then let's make relations and connections like, like connecting dots. So if you do it that way, then what, what Christ is doing in the incarnation looks like a coincidence of opposites. God was already there. The Son of God was already in the Trinity hanging out, I guess, before time, even though before is a time word. Okay, but whatever, above somewhere, even though above is a space word. <laughs> so none of those are pro- appropriate. But he's it's, it's already there, right? And then so when Christ comes becomes human, he sort of joins together this We don't want to say it was already there because, of course, his becoming human is the very generation of humanity. But whatever, let's just say it kind of comes together. Well, Maximus just sort of inverts it. He says that sometimes too, but he also inverts it and says, yeah, but it's also the very generation of opposites. You can think of it this way. Unless Christ is his humanity, there is no humanity there to differ from his divinity at all. The very difference between his natures depends on his being both natures. So in his case at the least, and I'm just limiting it to that first, this is where I first saw it, the identity, the hypostatic identification of the Son of God with his humanity is the thing that generates the opposites, which then relate reciprocally or symmetrically in himself. That is, this is why he, by the way, for really only the second time in history, applies perichoresis, usually a Trinity word, to Christ's natures and activities and wills. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that works, I think, metaphysically. I try to get in chapter one, but I'm just saying that's where I first saw the generation of opposites. So the, the identity, the hypostatic identity of the two natures is, in fact, the generation of even their difference, which then allows them to relate in a way that's totally not natural at all because they are they only relate in him and as him. So, the, so supernatural, in, in Maximus' sense, is almost just the hypostatic. Right. It's not some other thing super added, like another level of things. And, 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 and so, this is why there's a symmetry, even vertically, so to speak, between God and world uh, that's established, at least say, between Christ's divinity and humanity. But then, for Maximus, once again, he blows it up into a whole metaphysic. And this becomes the basis for God's suffering in you and in the world. And he's still suffering even now. And so he'll say, for example, in his exposition on the Lord's Prayer, there's a part where he goes off and he says, he's riffing on Matthew 25. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And he says, God himself in the flesh tells you that he is the poor man. (laughs) He himself says it. And unless that's just a really flowery way of getting you to throw some cash to someone in need. Maybe actually it means what it says, even in the scripture, that, that Christ is in that man. What you do to him, you, to that man, you do to Christ, because Christ is the most fundamental subjectivity of the subject there. The one word, the logos, becomes the logo, even of every person. So the very fundamental, the foundational ontological principle of me is another person, the word. There is no such thing as doing anything to me that you don't do to the word, right? And uh, this is also why Maximus has themes of like deification is, he says, for example, your, your soul, and he gets this from Origen, some others, but he develops it, your soul giving birth to the word again so that your soul becomes like the mother of God, Theotokos, the Virgin, again, giving birth to the son of God, right? That is the same. That's another way of saying it here, it's his version of the adoption, right? Of John's adopted, we have, we're given power, to become the children of God. You are not children of God by nature, but you are in fact children of God by adoption, which is a supernatural, but no less real. Like you become, in fact, what you could never have become by a natural process, but that's because the word is already buried in you, right? Otherwise you wouldn't exist. (laughs) He is the one that generates opposites and therefore the symmetry, the relation, the bond between. That I think is amazing because what I just said there, what I saw in Maximus was it's actually through his developing an extremely precise vision of conciliar Christology, which is ratified in 681 in the Sixth Ecumenical Council, at least that one point is right. But he himself sees in this the entire logic of the world and God's relation to it. And, and that, I think, is amazing because it doesn't mean you have to say divinity is no longer impassable so that we can get God to suffer in us and somehow relate to us, right? Instead, it's, uh, it's no. If you really appreciate the whole mystery of Christ, which is why I named the book that, if you really see the whole logic at work, you can have it all. Because, of course, divinity itself is impassable, but divinity itself doesn't die. Because divinity itself doesn't exist divinity itself only exists as the three right so there's no abstract god that's why maximus can call god the god beyond god it's also why he can say in christ we see that christ transcends not only humanity but divinity right this transcending of divinity is his ability to be created and remain god right so he takes dionysius in a christological direction that's Amazing, that's another thing, but anyway, all that to say is, yeah, I, I, that's really struck me. And I was, I'm glad you saw that because I was, I was, I was really taken off. I really honestly was like, what did I just read here? Like, is that real? I'm gonna look it up in the Greek. Is that what it says for real? Is somebody messing with this? Because it's, he just said, you know, and then I started thinking back to the New Testament, then I'm like, what? It's there, right? Yeah, it's Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Did he? He didn't even know you. Well, you just killed, you know, you oversaw Stephen's killing, you killed me. So it's there. It's already there. And Matthew 25, we mentioned and so on. So, uh, yeah, amazing stuff. But it's only because he can, he his identifying himself personally, that with that, right, strange development of the sense of person. When he does that, he generates the very natural opposites in their opposition. And because he himself is the only link between them, they can relate in a completely non-natural or, in a sense, non-essential way, a way you could never abstractly bring together, which would entail things like God suffering in his world, although he still is the creator and ground of that world. Super,
3: super, yeah.
0: I'm curious how this plays out in the deification account. Um, this is one part that I got a little confused and hope that you can unconfuse me.
1: Oh, I probably can't. <laughs> so, nah, that's my fault.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, Maximus, he talks about um, humans as being created beings and not the uncreated. Uh, according to the Logos, the Lagoi. Mm -hmm. And then in this hypothesis, we have, like you just said, in your response to Marco, Christ is the subject of that very hypothesis that is our subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Um, And in other places, you talk about this as what grace is, right? That uh, grace is is implanted in this hypothesis, Mm -hmm. the word and our nature that is our subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Nature and grace already sort of by in, in, the, in a very creation right uh mm-hmm. and already happening as you argue before baptism um mm-hmm. in maximus's account mm-hmm. but but that aside what i what i struggle to comprehend and he also relates this to virtue the virtues are there but yeah. um you just have to stop with the deception to stop with the, the false ideas about the world the phantasms and then those will emerge right mm-hmm. so I, I got a little confused about what is nature in this schema right so he, there's a radical disjunction between nature and grace between mm-hmm. humanity, creation and uncreation that are brought together in this hypothesis but then we start talking about the seed is in you and the virtues are there.
1: Grace, <laughs> so I, I got a little confused. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, uh, the whole what I, I call it in that chapter, the aporia of grace and Maximus, because just like you, what, what you're pinpointing is, uh, I mean, to my mind, it, it hadn't, and maybe I'm not, I'm, I might not be successful at it either, but it really hadn't been resolved in the sense of it's, a, it's actually more, even more extreme than the way you stated it. It was. On the one hand, you, you emphasize the more sort of, which is definitely right. I mean, explicitly, he says that the Holy Spirit is universally imminent in all creation just by the fact that things are created. Mm. That's even a departure from like Origen, who, who <laughs> wanted to like say the Holy Spirit sort of confined to the saints, right? The ones that are explicitly Christian and being sanctified, at least in, on first principles, I, I think it's a little unclear elsewhere, but. So uh, he's like, no, like the whole Trinity is kind of all there, all the, already, you know, creation is incarnation. Of course, when the word of God is incarnate, he, he, uh, he, it's, it's not like he's any less perichoretically united to Father and Spirit. So they're like all there. So you have that universalizing, almost like, right, Nouvelle Théologie, like that's the kind of stuff they love, you know, and like, let's get back to that. And um, at the same time, you have texts like in Ambiguum 20, where Maximus is also, like, say, taking over from Dionysius, this really strong sense that deification is, uh, is ec- ecstasis, right? It is ec- it's ecstatic union. Mm-hmm. And he even explicitly says there that there is nothing in our nature whatsoever that anticipates in any way deification.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He says, otherwise, I do not understand how we could, un- we could call it a going out of your nature to become one with Christ or with God, right? So on the one hand, deification as ecstasy means that there, you might even say there's not even an obediential potency in our nature for de, for becoming unified with God for deification. On the other hand, every single created thing has the power of deification in it by virtue of being created. So that really does seem just like an aporia as a nice way to say it. Maybe it just sounds like a straight up contradiction. Um, the way I try to get around it is, once again, the uh, not get around it, but to resolve it, is to say um, this is this is actually not only explicable through what I call crystal logic. It's actually necessary for him to to say these two different things, because once again, nature never has to do the work that only hypostasis can do. That's the starting point. I'm going to get something a little more concrete in a second, but um, in other words. There is nothing in our nature as such, qua created, which could in any way be created, uncreated nature as such. Uh, Otherwise, we're once again working in the logic of essences and and nature, and we're we're trying to live in abstraction and pull these two abstractly different entities together into some kind of relation of unity. That will always fail, or at at the very least, be an extremely precarious conjunction, which is easily torn apart. And, but for Maximus, he thinks we don't need that. (laughs) The very, another way to say that the Logos becomes the Logoi is, and he explicitly does this in in bigum 71, quoting Dionysius, is to say that the whole creation is the word's own ecstatic union with the world, which is in fact, the generation of that world. Once again, what he unifies with, he generates. His identification is the generation of an opposite, even that he isn't by nature, by divine nature, just like in his, just like his humanity, his humanity is not, you would never say, for example, right. That Christ's humanity was deified. Well, I shouldn't say you would never, there are some Thomas who do say this. (laughs) Sorry. But, um, uh, and I go after them a little bit at the beginning, because I think it's fundamentally wrong, but um, it's, at least for Maximus, let's just keep it there you don't need anything else to be a mediator between Christ's humanity uh, and his divinity such that his divinity or his humanity is deified through something like created grace mm-hmm. which are sort of uh, as it were infused right into your human nature which gives you which gives the natural powers supernatural proportions mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's, that's all a product of abstraction for Maximus from that vantage. Because in Christ, of course, he needed nothing other than himself, his person. His person is the sole mediator between his two natures. They're the only reason why they exist in opposition at all. is because he, he is both. So he always emphasizes the is. He is both. Not just he's in two natures or out of two natures, but he is the two natures. He adds that all the time. And that is his own contribution. But anyway, so for him... It's because neither nature has to relate in any way, uh, in some sort of abstract way, uh, uh, logic of, of nature and how you're going to fit them together. Does one nature have an obediential potency that sort of anticipates the super addition of the other? Uh, is this one mediated by some other thing that's sort of a created grace, but it's not really a tertium quid and you're trying to fit it all together. And for him, it's like, no, they, they relate completely and totally in his terms, perichoretically which is to say whole and whole, complete. Mm -hmm. Whole and whole, holy is what he says. Exactly because the hypostatic union, that he is both natures, means that they don't need to be really related at all, except as him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is to say utterly, concretely, and supernaturally, not in the sense that a supernature is another abstraction, but um, in the sense that... uh, a person is already a, more than a person's nature. So, but, so a few other points on this. So Maximus does, for example, explicitly call grace uncreated. He never calls it created, um, despite certain French Thomists trying to make it work. But, um, but he, um, he, he it's because grace is God, right? I mean, this is sort of something I don't quite always understand with certain ways of speaking of grace, Grace isn't like a power, like it's not like something other than God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for Maximus, I think grace is the word of God in you, bringing his entire natural divinity with himself, because of course they're inseparable. So the word of God being in you is the same thing as the vir- virtue being in you, virtue itself, because of his, as he says, right, in Ambigion 7, Christ is himself the essence of virtue, because he's God, right? So if Christ is in you, even virtually, right, even in potencia, and yes, you need to, through synergistic cooperation, through prayer, through ascesis, through the sacraments, through all that, you need to bring that forth, but he does explicitly deny, as you know, right, in his dispute with uh, Pyrrhus, the bishop, uh, he says, and some people have even mused, like, did he kind of know about Augustine's doctrine <laughs> of grace? He did live in Carthage for several years, uh, you know, in North Africa, so there's there's nothing objective you can prove about that, but he says, it's not as if grace comes to us from without. Mm-hmm. It's not as if we're giving grace at some point. It is all always already given to you because the word of God is the logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you, and so he's pairing it with Athanasius, right? You uncover the image within you, which has been covered, marred by sin, disfigured. But the fundamental image remains intact if, if you but bring it forth, mm-hmm. which is to say, but give your hypostasis to. If you in hypostasis, you give your life to, you incarnate it. That's what it means, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So deification is also an incarnation. Because the more you actualize the logos in you, the more the logos takes you on as a part of his body, the body of Christ, mm-hmm. which is for Maximus Cosmic. It's everything, potentially. So, um, yeah, so I think what nature is there is an abstraction it's not that It's not that nature qua universal doesn't exist, it's that it, it doesn't exist qua universal right
2: right mm-hmm.
1: and so uh, so you can speak of nature, sure, that's fine, and, when, and he does, of course, and you have to, and we all do that but but it, it nature is. Nature, because the, the ground and goal of creation is the hypostatic union, which he says in question 60, famously. Uh, so he definitely doesn't think like the incarnation is just some simple response to sin. He thinks it's the very ground of God's creation from nothing at all. It's the ground and goal. Um, the arche and the t- telos. He, but that is only achieved in a person. Which means that our goal, our supernatural goal isn't natural in any sense, not even supernaturally. It's personal, mm-hmm. not, not individualistically, but personally, right? And so because the ground and goal of creation, the perfect identity of, of uncreated and created nature is only had and realized in a person. First in, in, in amidst our you know, in history and phenomena in the first century, Jesus of Nazareth. But that event, you know, is uh, one that's ongoing in all of the universe uh, because he himself, his unifying or his identification of both created and created nature is the goal. Then, of course, his person, which is not a nature, it's not even uh, his divinity. It's him, which means, which means that nature could never achieve what the person is mm-hmm. on its own. And this leads, lastly, to a wild, a wild corollary. It comes through in texts like Letter Nine, uh, which I translated and put online. Someone on Google, you could find it. It's a short letter where Maximus is pretty clear that actually one of the occasions of, of humanity's fall <laughs> is to think creation strictly according to the limits of nature. To think, that, to think that we couldn't achieve the, the, the uh, very identity which is achieved in historical incarnation is already to misconstrue the goal of creation, which is to say it's the precondition for failing creation. Hmm. Hmm. So something like, just to be really provocative, because why not? I'm sitting in a garage. Um, <laughs> your nature is the fall. Hmm. It's not only that it's not just a hypothetical or a useful fit. You can think of it. It's an abstraction, just like <laughs> any nature is. It's a, but fundamentally, if you say that the world could sort of, as it were, be made in such a way that it strictly conforms to the abstract limits of nature as such, what you are imagining is the fallen world. Um, because, of course, there for Maximus, I, I'm speaking obviously for, from his perspective, There is no world whose goal is not the perfect identification of created and uncreated nature in the word, the logos of God. Anything less than that is a failure of creation. So it's actually when we cling to the limits of nature that we already set ourselves in in free fall. This becomes ethical quickly, right? I need to preserve my life, and so I might have to do violence because scarcity is the law of fallen nature. After all, natures are limited, right? By necessity, mm-hmm. uh, there's only so much. There's only so many human beings around. I only have so much time to live. I only have so many strengths, and I have a lot of weaknesses as part of my natural condition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Therefore, maybe I shouldn't love my enemy because uh, it seems kind of stupid and self-defeating, right? So all of a sudden, this very pure nature makes it impossible to love actual persons. Mm-hmm. Pure nature is is an affront to God's creation because God's creation terminates in nothing less than actual persons. God, God didn't create an abstract matrix. Like he created faces. Right. Right. So, um, so I think that's an, all that to say, So nature itself actually uh, not only is an abstraction, which is fine. Like it's a, it's a, it's an intuitive abstraction. You know, you all have to start somewhere. Maximus does it sometimes and he notes it. He's like, when I think mentally and when I abstract, like uh, he uses, a certain phrase when I think conceptually, purely conceptually, not according to as it is re- in reality. Um, you you got to do that. I mean, this is part of pedagogy, but you have to think, so, you have to start somewhere. So none of that's like wrong. It's when you mistake that moment of thinking for the final limits of thinking and what's true and what's logical and possible and actual and what God actually is after in creation. That's actually when, at least in terms of theologizing, you're actually just theologizing the direction of. Uh, Adams fall.
3: Yeah, the the um, just a question on this, and uh, maybe a, a, a thought because when 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 you were talking about um, again the principle of the person and the positivity of the hypostasis and how this revolutionizes the philosophical idea of natures as abstract, as subsistent apart from the individual. Uh, I was thinking that, you know, I was hearing what you were saying, something similar to what sometimes Thomas called moderate realism. Mm -hmm. As far as for moderate realism, again, there are no natures apart from individuals. So Mm -hmm. natures are always individualized.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And the the more interesting point for me, though, is a question to you. Um, Because the way you were talking about uh, nature as necessarily abstract and therefore in some sense incompatible with the Christolo- Christologic uh, cristologic Christ- <laughs> mm-hmm. um it, it it seems to me you know i was thinking i guess i can put it this way you know in light of maximus uh view that you that you so well describe what do we do with the principle of like, you know, that, that grace presupposes nature. Yeah. You read that principle in light of Maximus.
1: Yeah, so I kind of prefer a different Thomas of the, of the Middle, Latin Middle Ages on this point. Thomas Gallus, <laughs> very little known. He says, for example, uh, I, I'm going get to get it right. He says uh, grace presupposes, perfects, and exceeds nature. The typical we usually hear grace doesn't destroy, but perfects nature or something like that, or presupposes and rest. that's fine, that's totally fine, and I think I even in the conclusion, I say, look, there's nothing wrong with abstraction like in fact, there's something there the universal really exists like that's i don't want I don't want to downplay that nature really exists. it's just that it never exists as bare nature. it only exists like so he takes over right from you might say the I don't know if moderate realism or even idealism, I've seen someone say Gregory of Nyssa has this sense of the collective universal. There is no humanity. That's not simply all humans. Um, and Maximus very much, he even interprets Adam that way. He thinks like when he, I argue that when he reads the uh, creation story, Adam falls, he means all of humanity, all human beings. So it's like a super temporal reality or might better call it a pan temporal reality. It's, uh, it's something that happens in all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, in, in an original way. But um, anyway, so uh, it's, I have no problem with the idea that grace um, presupposes nature or perfects nature. I want to see more on the exceeds nature. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, you can mean that once again, you can sort of say, well, it exceeds nature in the proportions it attains. though it's through the same natural powers. Right, it, sort of empowered by grace, certain habits and so on that are infused. Um, I mean, that's one way to understand it. The other way is to say, is to say that um, that the, ex, the excess of nature is what's known as a person. And so the person, the second person of the Trinity is in you, awaiting to be born, to manifest all of his virtues, which he is essentially in his divinity, and to become right, you, to take you on as members of His body, and that's how Maxus understands Paul's language of uh, that we are the members, of the body of Christ. He he understands it like metaphysically, like, <laughs> um, and you know, with this difference, of course, God's body, unlike ours right now, is not simply um, you know material. God's body is made up of deified spirits, you know, spiritual. Beings. Um, So, anyway, so I think, I think that I I, would. So, in other words, on the abstract level, I have no quibble with it, right? Because it's abstract, it's easy to agree with. Grace presupposes nature. Sounds great. That's a great general principle, which is just to say it doesn't destroy nature. And my what my argument is, my pushes with Maximus is that it's true that it doesn't need to destroy nature, but it also is true. That nature is not the whole truth. And so, um, like at one point, I think in the conclusion, I even talk about how somebody w- might want to mitigate some of Maximus's statements, like more extreme statements by like adding a secundum humanitatum, right? The, well, you know, God suffered and died according to his humanity. But of course, secundum humanitatum isn't the real thing. Right. There is no secundum walking around. You, know, you don't bump into that. you don't experience I'm not a secundum. I I, I can relate that way, but but it's and so this is Maxwell's emphasis like, yeah sure, he isn't simply his humanity, right It's not like he just like mutated from divin, divine stuff into human stuff. but he but he is his humanity. He is his divinity and he is the is of both. And there's no other way to say very sensibly in my opinion. God was crucified and died um, and that I can be buried in his actual personal death and receive his personal resurrection because it happened to him as the, as the subject and he as the subject is the is of whatever he uh, is predicated of him so it's not, and so this is what I don't, the one problem with abstraction, it doesn't have to be a problem, but it's easy to make this move, is to think that because I can separate things out spatially in my mind or mentally, that they're in fact separate, really. But it's like, there's always this buffer between them. Like, well, you know, the word of God is human flesh, and yes, he died in that flesh. Even St. Cyril said that, we agree with that, but you know, in a certain sense, uh, it's a little extrinsic to him still, right? Because he already was who he was. Far before, quote unquote before, he had flesh. Therefore, his flesh can't really qualify him in any essential way. Well, okay. Here I'd want to invoke uh, St. Cyril's like letter 45, which he says, uh, he says, some speak, quote, with undue precision of the word sufferings. <laughs> undue precision. I love that. Being overly precise can actually make things more muddled from a different vantage. So that's, I'd want to say it that way. It's a long answer to, the, to your, I think, pretty pretty good, straightforward question, which is, I have no problem with the principle grace presupposes nature, but grace exceeds nature and, and exceeds it precisely as a determinate hypostasis, which is positive, though non-formal.
2: Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. You've hit on, in the last couple
0: of answers, this, well, actually, no, I'm going to change my mind on this question. There's, there's one point that, I, that I'm that i very interested in, so I want to come back to the temporal questions um, and the post-Obserian story and the incarnation as the creation and how this works sort of uh, beyond the, the narrative of history. So, very interested in this. I'm also really interested in your discussion of the analogy. So, you talk about the analogy uh, of being (laughs) as experienced in the love of Christ in crucifixion, a favorite point of Balthazar's. Mm -hmm. But um, your understanding of analogy is not an ever increasing distance. Or asymmetry between humans and God, which is how Balthazar takes it, even in this act of crucifixion. But your understanding is rather a particularity that humans are analogous in that as we become Christ and Christ becomes us, there's an analogy, but only in the, the way that we are um, particular instantiations of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is if I understood that correctly? And how does this play out for for you and Baltazar if you were to have coffee?
1: <laughs> oh well, he'd probably go on and on about Bach and Mozart, and I would pretend <laughs> to know. Uh, but um, no, I um, great question. So i I would want to just take a little issue with the way you phrase one of those things, just so I'm on record. Um, I wouldn't say we're instances of Christ. Uh, because that can sound like Christ is a, a genus, and we just instance him as like individuals, and and you might not even meant that, but we we are one of the ways I phrase it is that Christ is repeatable in a non formal way universally. <laughs> so so um, he is ubiquitous as the right. He's the low boy. Mm-hmm but his his being imminently universally present does not occur in the way typically our our abstractions think of it how a universal is present present in all instances the person is more mysterious than that so i just want to emphasize that only because you know, you might not have even you know yeah. so i think the main thing yeah, no, no but i think the because right a big question i've gotten a lot is uh what does this, all this do to the primacy of christ and um his uniqueness and his exceptionality. And I try to argue that actually saying that his exceptionality means he has to be particular in such a way that it marks him off from all other particulars is actually not exceptional at all. That's just the way particulars are Uh, right. So his exceptionality is that he can be both particular and universal in himself. So that that's really exceptional. So anyway, but that's, that is a side point. Your main question is much more interesting, which is that, um, yeah, so just just first a historical point. I mean, the only reason why, I, okay, one thing this, I have mad respect for Balthazar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I just want to say that. Um, I don't think I would have had the interest in Maximus if it wasn't for Balthazar's groundbreaking work. Uh, especially his 1961 edition of Cosmic Liturgy, which is fantastic. However, I do, and so really it was, he was my guide. Balthazar as with, I think a lot of Catholics, especially, Uh, he he sort of, you know, he along with others, but like opened up, right, the world of the fathers in a new way for a lot of us. So I do want to give him credit for that because I I think that I depend on him for that. And as I even say at the beginning of the book, I, I really adopt his method of engaging the fathers. Right. I don't think it's wrong or automatically bad to raise questions that really seem to come from German idealism or something like that, impose them to the fathers the way that that um, uh, Balthazar did for, with Origen, Gregory, Missa and Maximus. I think that's just fine. I mean, sure, there's there's dangers. But um, so I have a lot of commonality with Balthazar on this issue of analogy. It is it is a point of divergence, which some, you know people will be like, well, that's kind of kind of crucial. A, a boring historical point to make is that um, analogy, analogia or analogos in the adverse uh, adverb form, it just doesn't mean what what they meant in the 20th century, uh, or even in certain medieval era, at least not in maxims. It really meant, it didn't mean like you have two terms and there's a sort of Theres a ratio between them, at least again, at least in Maximus. It does not mean that. because uh, it, it really what it means is something is something else in that thing's kind of way. And that sounds super abstract, but it's like uh, like I think one example is like my finger is not not me. My finger wouldn't exist if it weren't me. You know I'm, I'm barring all the questions of like atoms and stuff. <laughs> The physics but I'm talking like the form like this this is this being able to be identified as your finger your index finger it wouldn't exist unless it were me but of course it doesn't simply exhaust me and it is me it expresses me in proportion to what it is a finger
2: mm-hmm.
1: right and so um that's it's it's more like one scholar put it which i liked and borrowed it's analogy in maximus and arguably in paul it's what this person was saying but i'll just say in maximus it's more like a what they call the body logic like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so it's not that your toe and your finger and your head and all these different parts of your body are like it wouldn't make a lot of sense to like compare them and be like there's an analogy between them. I mean you could do that in an awkward way, but what's more important is that each fundamentally express you the one subject in their way in proportion to what they are analogously to themselves. And so that I think is what Maximus means when he uses the term. Uh, Balthazar tends to sometimes, you know, proof text in a way that, that doesn't come through. And it more serves his uh, idea of analogy as the uh, the latter and fourth type thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so uh, that's just boring historical point. I mean, but, but listen, it, it's got to be said because, in fact, otherwise we'd have a big problem because Maximus also says things like, like in, in the incarnation, right, God becomes analogous to us. Uh, so certainly that's not allowed in Shavarin or Balthasarian or Thomist ideas of analogy, right? The whole point is set up as asymmetry, I think. And I get there's a lot of versions. I think there's about six that I've counted. But, um, but they all seem to at least emphasize something like that, right? I mean, look, whatever note you can make, whatever characteristic you can sort of state is something like a commonality between what's above or God or divinity or uncreated nature and created nature. There's an ever greater dissimilarity or distance, as you said, this simply, in my opinion, and I know Balthazar speaks of analogy uh, or Christ in and as the concrete analogy of being, I think that's a nice phrase and it's doesn't seem to be super clearly understood by even Balthazarians like, uh, like they don't agree always on what it means. I think it glosses over a lot of problems. Clearly Christ is not simply summed up, summed up as an analogy between two ever dissimilar things, no matter how similar they are, because he is both ter- sides of the terms of the comparison. So what, what is that? You know, that's the question is like, so if he is the similar and the dissimilar and Maximus even says in one of his letters, he himself comprises the interval and he uses that distance diastema. Uh, which is a Gregory of Nyssa, sort of the whole of creature creature of the being is marked off by diastasis, right? Division and distance. Well, <laughs> Maximus's Christology says that Christ, again, he generates his own opposite. Yep. He himself is the two sides of, of the uh, comparison. So if you want to compare them, as even Shavara notes about Lateran four, that this is a statement made from the vantage of, quote, natures as such. He says that. Oh, that's fine, but of course, Christology can never be content with talking abstractly about natures as such, because then you don't get God on the cross. Um, so, whatever it is that uh, impels us to say more than just abstract things about created and uncreated nature and how they can somehow become one, that's the very that's the very thing by which Christology exceeds an analogy as a logic. Christ, like an analogy, wasn't crucified. <laughs> it, was, it was a person. <laughs> so uh, whatever analogy, as it were, is going on within Christ, if you want to abstract about his two natures, that's that's fine. I'm not, I'm not, that's why I don't think the Christologic, as I understand it, is a simple negation of Balthasarian analogy. What I take issue with is when Balthasar wants to absolutize the rule of analogy to either subject Christology to it, as I think he does in a few places, or to make Christology something of an exception to it, which I think he does in other places. And I'm not sure he always, and then it's still in other places, he seems to say something that's really close to what I want to say. So I don't know if it's all clear, even in him, I would leave that to others. But so I think that's the biggest difference is that I don't, I don't think it's wrong. Again, just like I don't think abstracting is wrong. I mean, you got to start somewhere. Analogy makes some sense. I think, I think it makes more sense as, a, as an apophatic theology. Uh, I think a lot of different traditions and philosophies could easily subscribe to something like that, which is partly what makes it appealing because it's a common ground. Yeah. Uh, it's just the problem is when when you have to go to talk about the creator becoming created as well, and then being born, and then being killed, and then going to hell. Uh, that's and both of us are, I think, knows this. That's the other thing. I'm not. I don't think I'm like saying anything here surprising. I think he was trying to get Maximus to go in one direction, and especially uh, as a kind of resistance to Hegel, which he states. I mean, he states that in the first few pages of his book. That's not a guess. He says that, he says Maximus can look Hegel in the eye. And so, um, which I agree, but, you know, maybe in a different way. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so I, I think, so there's the boring historical point about analogy, right? It just simply isn't really the way it works in Maximus's work. But, but I think there's also the bigger point like, and this is where I, I, this is where one of the things I want and hope for with the book is I really want to bring, it's not, I don't get any like special pleasure. If I do, it would be sinful out of like saying edgy things, like just for the sake of it. I'm not just like an edge Lord. Uh, maybe I am sometimes. And for that, I repent. But, um <laughs> but, but it, but I think Maximus needs to be recognized fully as his own in his own integrity, as an incredibly creative contender and thinker in the broad and wide and rich Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think bringing him in as a sort of champion of something like the Analogia Entis has understood by Balthazar in, certain, in mid-20th century theology tends to mute what he might actually have to say to that very discussion. So I think in a way, even though I learned from Balthazar to treat Maximus as a a contemporary interlocutor and thinking through these fundamental issues in theology, I I think I want to. And so in this sense, I think I'm actually extending Balthazar's own intuition, even though I'm turning it back on Balthazar by saying, is Maximus really saying what you're saying? And it's not just a point of like correcting the historical record, but in fact, getting clear on some of the the texts and the flow of his thought can actually make him a fair contender and participant mm-hmm. in the discussion. Uh maybe even in such a way that it could um it could help push back or correct <laughs> or at least contend with uh a Balthazar or or whoever, a Ron or a Bogakov, or whoever. So um so that's I don't know if that answers your question, Charles, but
3: can I can, I can I push you a little bit on this? Just push sure. me. Like I don't know. I mean, I don't really know. What I, don't really know what I don't really know what I'm talking about. But I'm in a garage, for goodness' Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm lying on a bed. So you know, the guest room where Charles was lying, you know, a week ago. So um, no, because as you, as you were talking about this this issue of I haven't read Baltasar's book on on Maximus and. But the way, the way Balthasar understands Christ as the concrete uh, analogia entis and, and the way you were talking about uh, the idea of Christ as the hypothesis that generates the opposition. Yeah. You know, the way I understand the concrete analogia entis is precisely that. Hmm. It's, it's precisely, you know, the, the unity of the opposites. But mm-hmm. the unity that does not suppress the opposites, but even uh, um, uh, how can I say uh, stresses even more the paradoxality of the fact that two opposites are, you know, united in one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an essay uh, that Balthasar wrote, what is it? The fathers, the scholastics, and 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 not. us, yeah. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he he makes this point like very very clearly, beautifully. So I don't know if if for lack of knowledge, I'm sort of like flattening out the 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 two positions, or if mm-hmm. if as you said, Balthasar is not always consistent. So and mm-hmm. you said sometimes you know you think that you're saying the same thing, but sometimes not, and sometimes he's changing his mind, or he's saying he's using the notion of analogy in different ways. Or maybe there's at least one way in which he uses this idea of uh, Christ being the concrete analogia entis, which can be um, compatible, is compatible or is a development of Maximus view, even though Maximus does not use the idea of analogia mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, and I would want to say I have no problem in
1: principle with that move, right? Like if if the it's it's perfectly legitimate for a Balthasarian to look to like then this is, needs to happen more, right? With some of us like nerdy historical theologian people we need to be told a little more often, like, okay, all right, you corrected a detail or two. Like, who cares? Like we're talking about God here. Like, let's actually get to that. So I don't want to be that. I don't want to play that. And and so it's definitely, it would be a move that I would respect and actually hope for that somebody more sympathetic to Balthazar's um, position on this would say, look, okay. Yeah. I'm not going to argue like it's right there in his text, but look, you know, we can speak through the issues and think through the implications. Certainly I do that even in the book. I don't sim- simply report, you know, always. So I, I like that and I'm glad for that. Here's, here's one way though that I would want to, there's two things to note though. In the, in the book on Maximus, there's, there's a section where Balthazar gets super nervous about Maximus's use of identity language. Tavtotis. Uh, and, and it is a deliberate thing. I mean, so Maximus doesn't just speak of the the henosis, right, the union of natures, or even the conjunction. He does do that sometimes, but he really emphasizes the taftotis, that they are the very same. Those two natures are the very same in Christ, concretely. And so, if the Balthazarian concrete analogy of being, I would ask this. Is the concreteness an identity? yeah. That's, yeah. And if it is, then I think we are very close. Now, yeah. the problem is when I talk to both the Zarians, they don't seem to want to say that. Mm. And it's because Balthazar himself re, re, did kind of resist that. And, and I get why. I mean, like one hand, right, there's a, there's a very simplistic idea of identity where it's like, yeah, of course, mutation, right? Like these two are shoved together and they're one clump of something so that they're, yeah, of course. No, we're not saying that when we say identity. But, um, and so what I think doesn't, isn't as explicit as I would want to make it in Balthazar's position is that the concreteness, like, what I mean, I could put it this way. Concreteness can become an abstraction. <laughs> we can have an abstract principle of being concrete. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to get to the determinant identity. And I think that's what Maximus wants to push as well. Because there's plenty of people who will easily confess Christ, yeah, of course, there's one person, two natures. Sure, there's a union of a created, uncreated nature. Sure, right? They there con- there's a conjunction, maybe even a generation of opposites. But you know, but I mean when we say God died, I mean it's we want to we want to say that with like a hush hush a little bit. It's a little bit provocative. And um, and so I I, I would I would want to push that way. I, maybe that would help clarify some things if I said is the concreteness is it right to call it an identity such that the uncreated and the un, and the created in and as Christ are one they are one actual thing and the duality is uh, one in which is uh, is most clear only in abstraction but the degree that's an abstraction it departs from the real and if and i think perhaps there's even a spectrum even among both Azarians, perhaps and this is where i'd want to hear more from them like maybe some of them are, want to read it that way and maybe others want to resist and maybe I've just talked mainly to the ones that want to resist. Um, but I do think it is significant that Hegel is sort of the haunting specter, even though Balthazar himself will sometimes take a Hegelian phrase to describe Maximus's thought, which he doesn't always do negatively, like the identity of identity and non-identity. I think he wants to resist Maximus' Um, sounding too much like Hegel, like there's that danger right? you bring Hegel and Maximus too close together. Well, either, either, uh, hey, uh, he- uh, Maximus is going to look Hegel in the eye and say, Look, I'm going to teach you a thing or two, or it might look him in the eye and say, You know, hey, uh, great minds think alike, <laughs> you know, and so that's the that's the like nervous energy I sometimes feel throughout that book and, and even later parts like the Theologic. Um, but yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good pushback. And look, if I can, if I can like uh, recruit Balthazar for the cause, like let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. So I'm not opposed to that.
0: Awesome. You have, we're kind of out of time, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Is it okay? Are you? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're good. Uh, and and yeah, but uh, I, I wanted to emphasize the. Um, We've been talking, so this has been a very good and analytical discussion. Um, we've mentioned, uh, Marco mentioned he was moved by passage, but something you should know about this book, listeners, I address you, <laughs> is it's beautifully written in a style you would not usually find in a, in a book-length treatment of this kind of topic, of this academic treatment. Um, And in in a good way. That's a good. That's oh, good. Good (laughs) good style, way. And uh, and and I uh, I mean that both in the actual prose, which is magnificent, but also in the I really particularly enjoyed the way that it combines historical analysis, systematic sort of dogmatic theological Neo-Cassidonian analysis (laughs) of. exegetical readings of the text with a persuasive voice and a theological orientation towards a a bigger picture that you say in the introduction or in the preface, it's a work of historical theology. And you're, you're owning that. I really enjoyed that. And, um, I have to say like was moved throughout my reading of the book, um, and like have gone to Eucharist with, greater fervor, which for which I
1: thank you. I thank you. Wow. Thank you. Um (laughs) thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it has expanded my own understanding of of God and and the tradition I inhabit. So I really appreciate that. Um, And so in 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 that kind of vein, um you talk about in chapter four, I'm not gonna ask a very specific question, but in chapter in the final chapter before the conclusion, you talk about incarnation as creation. That is overcoming fallen humanity, which you treat outside of the, you know, as a as a picture of who we all are, um, outside of a strictly linear view of time. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, how do I ask this question? As you think about that chapter, as you think about the church, um, as you think about the deacons we have here and that kind of thing, how would should this have book affect our own understanding of God the creation of the world the final creation of the world the eschatological fulfillment our own lives and sin and deification like what's what's the message here for for if if you buy all of this um, what's the vision at the end oh
1: yeah so it's a great it's a great question um and it is a perfect book too because you know I mentioned at the beginning that why i ch- decided to write on maximus like when i hadn't intended to was because within a few weeks of just reading his text i, I was just i was taken by by his actual thought i got it was beautiful again yeah. a balthasarian right i'm influenced by that i agree with him on that this sense of like there's got to be an aesthetic like theology isn't just analytic and yes we've been speaking that way a lot and you you do that and again you have to sometimes no problem but at the end of the day if god doesn't move me and maximus has a beautiful meditation on this if god does not move me then it's as if god is not beauty itself mm-hmm. and so if our if our talk about god doesn't at some point lead you to a greater love and a free and a perfectly free compulsion to be attracted to the absolute beauty of god's kenosis in all creation in order to you know god became human so that we might become gods well god becomes the world so that the world might be and be him in other words creation is just creation is adoption into god's trinitarian family it's not biological in that sense it's not natural but it's (laughs) ask any any parent right of adopted children it's no less real It's truly spiritual in that sense. And the spirit is more substantial than bios, biology. Um, And so what I think, so there's a lot of answers to the question I think people, I would actually be interested in hearing like other people and like readers and you guys, you know, tell me more what you see in it because really the goal of the book is to lay out as best I can right now the beautiful vision that compels me that I see in Maximus. But one of the big things is this for me. It's It's the whole, what Maximus I think does for the Christian tradition is something that Origen did for it, of course, but he's correcting Origen as he does it. But what I think is brilliant about Maximus, and other people have noted this, he doesn't simply discard prior thinkers like Evagrius, uh, Origen, Didymus the Blind, who were sort of on the naughty list by his life. (laughs) Um, He doesn't discard it. What he fundamentally sees is what they were after. And like in their chasing of the beauty of God, Okay, they may have misstepped here and there. They may have said something a little too much here and there. But, there, but we can't lose what they saw. There are some fundamentally – and one of the things that Origen did, and I think Maximus says, is it gives an entire framework for the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Why, why do ascesis? Mm-hmm. Why, why deal with all the passions, which Maximus's writings do? And that's something that my book isn't as clear on except in that fourth chapter But it's because there's other scholars who have done it. Why are they so obsessed with the thoughts, the passions? Why like why are they proto-psychological and they're doing all this introspective figure? Because, and here's the way, here's the way I think Maximus frames it, what it can offer for us. The spiritual life isn't even fundamentally about like a legal thing. It's not about you becoming in the right in a court of law, being judged righteous. It's not about you. Uh, simply being stricken by, by something called grace, which puts you in, in the right place for God. It's not even about you just being so, so obedient that you're a good child. It's, it's really about you becoming God and God being born in you. It's about God becoming incarnate in and as your, your incarnate life. So why do you do these things in order to cultivate the virtues? Not simply so you can be like God or image God or be a better witness for the faith or something. It's because, and I'm going to say this provocatively, but only on the, only on the basis of Maximus' own statements. I want to say God actually, he gains something in you. That sounds horrible, right? I mean, it's like, look, how could God, <laughs> But he, he never, he gains nothing essential, it, it, right? So we're back to the nature person distinction. But you are unrepeatable and you actually are unique. And so you are a unique embodiment of the logos. Um, and yet you are not yet fully the embodiment of the logos. And the work of the spiritual life, of prayer, eschesis, of sacraments, of the liturgy, of loving, of, of uh giving to the poor, of working on behalf of justice, of all of these things, isn't simply to be good and to and to let everyone else know that you're good because God's good. It's to be God. It's to it's for God to take flesh once again, right? In in all things, as he says in book 722. That's a framework of the spiritual life, which is at once to me profoundly, it makes God's the depths of God's kenosis like what he what the, the depths he's willing to go through to to get to us it's unbelievably moving to me as love mm-hmm. and then compelled by that love that he's already buried within me and not only that and you know I'll le- I'll leave the details out cuz it's so long but in that chapter he even goes to the depths of becoming the possibility of our own false thoughts our own false pictures of ourselves and of the world which we all vainly struggle to incarnate we imagine ourselves as something that we really aren't and we try to make ourselves that and that's sin that's a that's that's a false incarnation and it's something that needs to be destroyed and the judgment of god which is already at work in the church and confession all these things is a stripping away right i mean it was paul who said my old self, right? Casting off my old self, putting on Christ. So it's literally true. Um, I have to be crucified with Christ. And the I that is crucified is the I that I insanely and ridiculously fantasize about and try to bring into existence. And it needs to be destroyed, not because God hates me, but because God loves me and he wants me to be truly born, truly created, and then he himself truly incarnated because those are all one thing. It's deification. So, so that, that's, that's one, that's like the biggest thing I could say is that it, that framework of the Christian life to me is utterly compelling. It makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense out of things that we do. It even makes sense in a really amazing way about prayer and the synergy that happens between God's will and our own and prayer. But we, you know, we can talk about that another time, but uh, but, but that's what I want to get at is the, is, the, is the that's a kind of Christian life that I understand, that that I can, that motivates me, that draws me, that makes like, yes, I want the word of God to be born in me. He's there waiting to be born again in the nativity of my own soul. Um, he just wants to take on flesh. And in taking on my flesh, he deifies me. He makes him, he gives me his divinity as well. Um, and in my suffering, we mentioned earlier, right? He he suffers. Like, I love this passage from Perpetual Felicity, right? I think it's around chapter 17 when uh, Felicity's uh, giving birth early. So -hmm. she can, she wants to suffer and, and the guard starts making fun of her like a jerk, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't even like, like he knows, right. For one thing. Oh, you can't even like give birth. uh, What are you going to do when you face the beast? That's going to be a a heck of a go (laughs) for you. And she says, right. I, you know, when I suffer, then one will be in me suffering with me.
2: Mm.
1: Um, and look, I mean, so both in terms of our own labors, our cooperation with the spirit of God and in, in, in the spiritual life and the disciplines and everything else in the liturgical life, but also in our own suffering and the weaknesses and the frailty. Um, there is absolutely no state of, of being, whether it's the true creation or even our false ones. And its consequences that God is, is not present, and, and overcoming and deifying. So that's if you know if that doesn't compel us in terms of a a framework for the spiritual life, I'm, I'm not sure what will.
2: Thank you. thank you,
1: Well,
0: thank you so much for your time, Jordan. Marco, were you all good?
3: Yeah, no, just 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 to the one question of a practical nature and a comment. When is the book coming out?
1: yeah yeah uh i don't have a date yet but it looks it's in production now so i am I'm, I'm guessing it's coming out with the university of notre dame press i think probably in their spring catalog 2022 beautiful
3: beautiful and the other comment addressing the readers as charles the, the listeners as charles you know did before if you don't buy and read this book you're crazy <laughs> I'm gonna put that on the back of the book. Can I do that?
1: you crazy!
2: Crazy.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Jordan, for coming on. Uh, particular good. I would really enjoyed talking to you about this, and uh, appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me.